You are listening to Inclusion Evolution, a bi-weekly podcast that brings you insightful and engaging conversations on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the legal profession, the technology space, the world of sports, and our everyday. Here are your hosts, Lisa Mueller and Michael Kasdan. Welcome back to Inclusion Evolution. I'm Lisa Mueller. And I'm Michael Kasdan. Well, Mike, we're back again with another episode. And can you believe it? June's almost over and we're almost halfway through 2023. It is insane. I do not understand time. Well, Mike, I thought before we leave the month of June, it would be good to take some time since June is Pride Month and we just celebrated Juneteenth to spend some time talking about what we can do to be better allies to historically marginalized groups such as the LGBTQ plus and black communities. And, you know, you and I have talked about allyship before on this podcast, and I thought today we would focus on how these groups are currently being impacted by what's happening throughout our country at the moment. And I think you know what I'm talking to, and I'm specifically referring to the proposed or enacted legislation in many states that's limiting LGBTQ plus rights and or the teaching of black history in schools and universities, as well as the surge in the banning or restricting of books in schools and public library that contain certain LGBTQ or black content. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm really glad that we're going to stop and talk about these three issues, which um, I know are appropriate calendar-wise because it's Juneteenth and Pride, but also um, it very much um, in the the news every day. I just think it's an urgent issue to talk about, and, and I'm so glad that we have we have three great guests that we're bringing on to help us have this conversation. Three great guests, indeed. We have Jonathan Barbie, Michael Invernell, and Jessica Troskel. So let's just take a few minutes to get to know them a little bit more. Jonathan Barbie is an accomplished and creative trial lawyer with Molo Lampkin, where he focuses on intellectual property and technology-related litigation. Jonathan represents inventors, innovators, startups, and research institutions, both as plaintiffs and as defendants. With a degree in electrical engineering, Jonathan litigates complex patent, trade secrets, trademark, and copyright matters across an array of technologies and industries, including the high-tech, medical devices, and pharmaceutical industries. Jonathan has extensive experience in all phases of litigation, including commencing suit, discovery, motion practice, expert witnesses, depositions, oral argument, and trial. He has litigated cases for his clients in numerous district courts, the Federal Circuit, the ITC, and the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. Excellent. I have a real soft spot in my heart for electrical engineers, <laughs> yes. and IP lawyers. Those are just great people. They are. Um, so, <laughs> um, so let's turn next to uh, Michael Invernale. Um, he's a senior licensing manager. Uh, of Physical Sciences with UConn Technology Commercialization Services. Uh, Michael is responsible for assessing engineering and physical science-related invention disclosures for patentability and market potential. He supports UConn inventors through management of intellectual property, creation of invention-tailored marketing plans and outreach, and agreement negotiation and management. Uh, Michael is also an alumnus of UConn, where my daughter goes to school currently. Um, he's, uh, he earned his PhD in chemistry back in 2010. Uh, with a focus on polymer science, specifically with conjugated polymers. Um, he worked 
in IMS as his primary laboratory. Uh, it was authored over 18 publications and four patents, as well as a book chapter during his four-year graduate career. Uh, in 2010, he co-founded uh, Alpha Chromix, uh, his first startup experience based on his Yukon um, IP. Um, he then ran product development, regulatory, and operations in the nutritional supplement and contract manufacturing industries, including FDA exposure for food, supplement, drug, and medical device regulations. Jessica Trostel is the director of intellectual property strategy for CSU Strata, leading in the development of her institution's extensive IP portfolio with a focus on unique protection strategies to maximize the value and impact of commercialization matters. She has worked in technology transfer for more than five years and with institutions of higher education for more than 11. She holds a double BS in biochemistry and molecular cell biology. I'm going to start that again. She holds a double BS in biochemistry and molecular cellular... Sorry, I'm going to start that again. It's a mouthful. She holds a double BS in biochemistry and molecular cellular developmental biology from the University of Colorado in Boulder, a BS in business administration from the University of Northern Colorado, a master's in intellectual property law from the University of Colorado Law School, and a master's in biomedical engineering from Colorado State University. Those are three very impressive guests. And so with that, welcome, Jonathan, Michael, and Jessica. Mike and I are really excited to have you on the podcast and to be talking about these very important issues with you today. Excellent. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate being here. Yeah, good morning. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks. Good morning, everybody. Just real quick before we get started, just a disclaimer that the personal views and thoughts expressed today by Jonathan, Michael, and Jessica are their personal views and thoughts and not to be construed as representing in any way the views of their respective institutions, whether it's Mo Lampkin, it's University of Connecticut, or CSU Strata. So with that, let's go ahead and get into things because we have a lot to talk about today. And the way I thought we would structure our discussion today is we would break it down into four different buckets. Uh, the first bucket would be book bans. Uh, the second bucket would be looking at legislative attacks on teaching black history. The third bucket, uh, legislative attacks uh, on transgender rights. And then the last bucket would be looking at attacks on reproductive rights. And then I thought it would be really great if each of you could talk about not only about what's happening on each of these topics, but also ask some questions. You know, we should ask ourselves, what have we done about these issues? And then what should or could be done? So, Mike, I know you have some knowledge about book bans. So do you want to get things started and share your thoughts with us? Yeah, I'm happy to, Lisa. Thanks. Um, so book bans, I think uh, I'm glad we're starting here because I think it does connect a lot of these issues because it focuses squarely on education. And I know that a lot of the um, attacks um, that, that we'll be talking about focus on education and are playing this long game. Uh, we talked about affirmative action on the podcast before. We've talked um, about the state legislatures that are enacting um, you know, laws or seeking to enact laws um, that are preventing um, universities from talking about certain topics and book bans fit really squarely uh, within that. Um, and, you know, book bans uh, and the effort to ban books um, or take them out of schools, um, it's not new. I was just remembering this morning that, you know, Judy Bloom, right, children's book author, you know, faced a lot of scrutiny for, you know, talking about 
you know, women's, you know, you know, sexuality and getting comfortable with your body. And so exactly. it's not new, but what's new is I think the intensity and the coordinated effort um, that that's underway in this country. Um, there was a report uh, last year that I think the Penn Foundation did um, that I think there were over 2,500 different instances um, of book bans in education. And it's really become uh, kind of a centerpiece politically for a lot of folks. You know, Ron DeSantis in Florida and others, there was a very in-the-news um, um, book ban that happened locally in a Florida school district where Amanda Gorman, um, our poet laureate, uh, where that ban was, I'm sorry, where that book was banned at the urging of a parent that just basically said, hey, I don't like this poem, it's woke. Um, and so that, um, you know, is so scary, kind of what, what's happening. I think the intensity and magnitude and the escalation of the political fight um, over book bans is is what's new. Um, and, you know, in terms of, you know, what's happening, I know that the, the Biden administration um, and Democrats um, are making a lot more noise about this issue. And um, there is actually a lawsuit underway that the Penn Foundation has started um, against the Florida dis School District. Um, so, you know, there are some political and legal things happening. Um, I think for me, you know, if I'm asking what have I done about it and what can we do about it, I think, you know, so far I've just been really outraged about it, <laughs> uh, which I know isn't, you know, it's the beginning. It's not necessarily the most constructive thing. Um, but, you know, this is, um, to me, a really serious issue. It's, it's sometimes hard to imagine that there is a plan by people, you know, th but there is. There's a plan to say, like, you know, let's, these issues um, make us uncomfortable or we don't like them or, um, you know, and we're going to remove them from schools. And if you look at some of the issues we'll be talking about today, right, it's Pride Month. Um, I think almost 50% of the books that are being banned um, have, you know, LGBTQ, um, you know, characters or issues so you know and many others you know focusing you know on race and you know if you think about the, the authors that are banned right it's it's amanda gorman it's tony morrison um so so it, it it's hard to imagine and and I, I keep getting outraged and somewhat surprised and i guess the outrage is okay but the surprise really shouldn't be surprised at this point um because it, it's definitely a plan that's underway and so i think that um, you know, in terms of what to do about it, I'm, I'm glad to see that there's some political organizing and some legal organizing on the other side. But I, I think we need much, much more. I don't know what other folks think. Yeah, Jessica, I think you had some comments to add to that. Yeah, I, you know, Mike, I, I think it's right to feel outrage. You know, that is the first step in realizing there's a problem. We all are really surprised by this happening and plaguing across the country. You know, I'm good my, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it doesn't help, <laughs> but it's, it's a good start to feel something and know that there's something we got to do better. You know, I have, I have a cousin who is a librarian in, in Wyoming, and I asked her about how that's going in the school system. And she said every day. Every single day, she's having to fight through these books. People are requesting books they've never read to be removed from an elementary school. And, and she just doesn't understand it. You know, like, how do we make sure that people are realizing that this is a freedom of education? You know, you as a parent can go home and tell your child they can't read these books. But that doesn't mean that you, you know do or don't do it. That it's, it's this idea that we allow for the, you know, the dissemination of knowledge and, and the ability to innovate and create and understand greater things. Because if you 
refuse to allow children to read these books, they can't come up with their own opinions. Absolutely. And I'm an avid reader um, and I've been outraged about this as well. And I've been following uh, what's been happening in a lot of these school districts and in several of them. I think it was in New Jersey where there was a book ban, similar type of situation, Jessica, where the parents uh, challenging the books in the library hadn't read the books and uh, students actually got up in support of um, the books themselves and saying they wanted them to remain in the library. And there was one student um, who was gay, who got up and said, you know, I didn't understand what I was feeling. I didn't know what to do. And thankfully, some of these books helped me understand what I was going through because I didn't feel like I had anybody to talk to or anybody would understand. And it helped me feel comfortable with my body. And I worry if we start banning these types of books, you know, where are kids going to go? I mean, inevitably, they're going to turn to the internet. And that can you know, lead them to very deep, dark places when there are these really great books out there that are meant to provide guidance and reassurance to these kids that, you know, what they're feeling, or what they might be going through is perfectly acceptable. That's true. I mean, the age range for those books that when they're being written is accessible and understandable, and it gives them that hope, right? It gives them that understanding, seeing themselves and other people and other characters. We talk about that as a society about all things, about toys and TV shows and movies and books are the parts that are being banned. That's the craziest part to me. That's an educational tool that you can hold on to and, and just feel like you're here, you're represented. And that's the craziest weird place to start. Michael, I think you had something you wanted to add. Yeah, just adding to that, just, you, know, you, you said it right there at the end, representation, right? Cultural representation is part of why these books matter, right? You you see every love story on TV or every XYZ person, but if you never see somebody kissing the person you want to kiss, or you're, you, you start to wonder, you start to think that you're different, that you're bad, that you're not this thing, right? And so these books are not only educational, but but you know, in, on, on a basic level, right, there's books that are probably just actually educational nonfiction books that are under attack, but that that's important. And I think the rage to call back to that, the importance of that is that you feel that call to action because mm -hmm. forgetting about it or becoming desensitized to these things, just saying, oh, there it is again, and feeling nothing about it is dangerous because that's apathy. So I think being angry every time is valid. Mike? Yeah, I mean, I just I just wanted to jump in and say that, I mean, exactly, Michael, you know, that's the point, right? On the other side, they, repre they recognize representation is important. They recognize um, that by sharing everyone's stories and, you know, showing everyone's, you know, issues that normalizes things. And that's what the push is, is, is about. That's, that's, and, and that's so, to me, so nefarious. And I know it's been said, you know, that like, you know, fiction is like the gateway to empathy, right? It's like by only, only by seeing these stories. Um, and that's why to me, um, I, I'm, I'm glad we're starting with this because it's like the tip of the spear, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, there was, um, all the rage a couple months ago, or maybe it was late last year. The, if you're familiar with the American girl doll products, they had come out with a book for girls talking about, you know, your identity, your looks, and, and one of the chapters had to do with gender and that sometimes, you know, you're a little unsure of your, your gender. 
And uh, there was a statement at the end of that book, because I actually bought it and read it, that said, you know, if you're not comfortable, you know, talking maybe to your parents about, you know, the changes that are going on in your body, you know, reach out to a doctor or provided resources um, for a child, for a girl to, you know, reach out to if they didn't feel like they had somebody that that they could um, share their experiences with. And again, I think if you remove those books, you remove these resources and then where are those kids supposed to go? So um, I think that was a, a, a great way to kick things off. And, and maybe we'll transition now a little bit and move to Michael, because I know you're knowledgeable about some of the attacks on teaching uh, black history throughout the country. So could you tell us a little bit um, about your thoughts on that subject? Thanks, Lisa. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the the attacks on black history, right, it's, it's referred to commonly or the the buzzword is sort of critical race theory, CRT. Um, I'm old enough that CRT used to mean cathode ray to <laughs> television, and so it took me a minute. I'm like, oh, oh, uh, and and so yeah, critical race theory um, is an academic and legal framework, right? It's 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 more than just Black history. It's more than just racism. It's systemic racism, right? Uh, things that we don't see things that you don't necessarily experience or things that happen that are beyond the sort of, uh, you know, what people might think is a, a TV version of racism where somebody's mean to somebody because of their race, right? It, it, there's that directness, um, but then there's also, uh, you know, just a whole history of legislation. And there were things about home ownership and there were things about who could attend school, who could vote. All of those things that were built into society after the quote unquote end of slavery, right? We're just past June 19th, um, but a lot of things persisted well past that. And so just to me, it's just history, right? This is just what happened. This is just ingrained in the history of this country. It is part of it um, and an unfortunate part of it, right? An unfortunate part that we took part in this institution that, that uh, Far beyond the other countries becoming more and more enlightened about it, we continued. Um, so, right that 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 has an impact. Right there are we are not far enough away from generations where people are not, you know, limit in some living memory of of the impacts of these things, and it's still happening today. Right, and so the 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 problem that we're facing is just like the banning of books. States are trying to ban education about this, right? They're trying to ban, you know, any mention of it, right? They're trying to take away uh, that history, and and then that's the ignorance is what's allowed to be manipulated, right? If you're if you don't know things, it's easier to be told wrong things. There's there's I think 36 different states have been trying to restrict education, um, right? And the 1619 project is something that was that was targeted uh, specifically by these attacks. On the other side, though, they're the NAACP, the Legal Defense Fund, has been fighting, and there's 17 states where they're trying to actually expand that education and, and, and bring back sort of more. I'm sure there's efforts in the 36 states to stop the, uh, the restriction as well, but that's 
you know, that that's sort of the struggle, right? That's the, the problem here is that if this is at the legislative level, they're telling the school board or they're telling, right, just like with the books, you remove, right, this is, they're, they're telling a public institution to do this. They're making it uh, legally required to restrict information. And so again, that, and you end up with misinformation and you end up with um, persistent hate and and systems that are treating other people unfairly uh, that that are hard to sometimes explain to people who aren't affected by it because you can't you can't just show them yeah and you know it's interesting my nephew is a high school history teacher and he's relatively new he's only been a, a high school history teacher for the last um 2 years um and it's very challenging for teachers. Um, there was also an article last year in the New York Times where history teachers in uh, middle school and high school were interviewed. And it's very tricky to, to teach these topics now. And, um, you know, when I ask him, how does he approach it? You know, you have, you know, he usually says somebody's always upset. And um, it's, it's, you know, not good because, as you said, Michael, you know, we're restricting education and this is part of our history. And it's important as we look at things like systemic racism and other things that permeate throughout our society. If you don't understand the origins of it, I think you can't deal with it. And, you know, we're going to continue to face a lot of the same problems over and over again. And, and this is just, a, you know, trying to sweep this under a rug is is just not useful. And it's exacerbating a lot of the problems that we're facing in this country now. Jessica, I think you had something you wanted to add. Yeah, I, I mean, the more I think about this, the more I think a lot about, you know, racist practices and healthcare and things like that. Because when you do clinical trials, you have to take these courses called CITI. And it's so that you have research ethics and compliance training. And it makes sure that you understand the racist practices that used to occur over time exactly. when they used to, you know, use prisoners or people of color or these types of things. And they did very unethical pieces. And when you become a clinician or if you work in healthcare, you have to read all these. You have to, exactly. you know, understand the ins and outs of all this racism, all of this terrible things that have happened over time, that history matters. It matters so much. And so can you imagine being a child in school, never hearing any of these crazy things exactly. that ever happened? Say they say, start taking away not just critical race theory, all these things where they you know, start attacks on different types of people across the country, you know, call it the Holocaust, things like that. When you start pulling these things out, when they go and they become, you know, physicians and things like that, are you blindsided? Like, have you never heard of this? Where, where do you start from without having that underlying knowledge? I mean, when you're a child, that's when you're becoming um, this person who's able and capable of thinking and digesting and, and pulling all this knowledge together to have, you know, morals, <laughs> to have ethics, to understand people's hardships. And if you remove that until they're much, much, much older, how do you change your mind? How do you get them invested in, in what the right thing to do is? Yeah. And, you know, what's so ironic about your comment is, you know, we've now traditionally had the opposite problem with clinical trials in the U.S. We don't include black patients and therefore, you know, they have, a, you know, some different biology. So then again, they don't have some of the same treatment options because their biology is is different. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just amazing. Um, Mike, I think you had something you wanted to add as well. 
I mean, yeah, just a couple of thoughts. You know, one, I think I think it bears saying that this is what this really is is like the logical extension of white fragility. Um, you know, like I saw um, a tweet um, on on June nineteenth, on Juneteenth, um, by Josh Hawley. Um, you know, one of the, one of the, you know, who's a Republican who's very, you know, anti-woke and very on the front lines of this, um, of this battle, um, you know, and it was something like, well, you know, America is the place where, you know, slavery came to die basically like, you know, so this, this kind of need to, um, you know, have this image of America as this, you know, flawless, beautiful, you know, patriotic freedom kind of story, um, you know, w- without really being able to cope with, um, you know, the complexities of the history and the fact that, you know, slavery and racism is so baked into this country's history then and now and always that like like michael said like it's part of our history um and you know if we're not able to grapple with these own issues and understand them and be aware of them you know what are we really doing um so that's you know one point and then just the other point is um you know the intended consequences are are bad enough it makes it so uh, treacherous and impossible to to actually teach this history um but i think also the unintended i think they're unintended uh, it just makes it hard to talk about like anything like I, I saw you know like it makes it hard to like teach the holocaust and like books like mouse being banned because you know it shows it's, it's on this list of topics like it's very hard to do this to have government in inside of teaching telling you you can't talk about this you can't talk about that um because it, it just ends up being broader than even intended and i think the intention uh you know is 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 itself you know bad michael i think you had something you wanted to add as well you mentioned something that that uh reminded me right i mean there's always the you know if you you don't know history you're doomed to repeat it part of things right but it also makes it easier to create a false history right one of the other things you learn when you study history is that uh the victors write the story right so if you all of the you know all of the older 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 wars where all it was was written down right you had you had maybe scrolls or books or everything whoever wrote down they they told that story right we don't really know who they defeated or what they were doing right we don't we don't necessarily you know dracula's story came exactly from, from right right I'm like well you know i mean yeah he probably did a bunch of stuff but i don't think he was a supernatural uh, warlord right you don't probably think not. vlad was flying around like a bat uh, I no mean, i mean I, is, you think he could have been it's always possible. It's always possible. <laughs> it's possible Nobunaga survived that arrow. You know, you never know, right? They all could have. Um, but uh, it, it's it's that's fun to think about, right? But erasing the Holocaust or erasing slavery or just imagining that none of this happened and that it doesn't have any effect on the present um, is is just impossible. It's untenable. Um, we have to know what came before to know what comes after. Even as a scientist, you have to know that. You have to stand on what came before to get to what comes next. Um, and if you don't know what that is, it's and that's quicksand, you're never going to get anywhere. Jessica? Yeah, I, you know, that's such a scary thought, Mike. I, I, you know, I haven't really thought about it that way, but that's what it is. You know, you're, you're 
rewriting what history is. And, you know, when we think about all the rules of like, don't say gay, why, why are they saying that? Why is it called that? Is it because we're trying to remove that from history? Exactly. You can't find this. You can't be this because it doesn't exist anymore. You know, and if you're removing all those books, you know, you're not teaching these lessons. You're not teaching people what, you know, what differences are, what they look like. Can they make it go away? And and that's what it feels like. You know, I, I haven't really thought about it that way, but it's totally true. I mean, even the history we know now, the victors write the books. That's yep. what it is. And that's what they're doing. The victors are removing the books because no one has stopped them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think this is a, a good segue to talk about our next topic. And I know, Jonathan, you're going to talk to us about this, which is um, legislation that's been proposed or passed that's attacking um, trans uh, rights. So do you want to share some of your thoughts with us? So I do think this is a great segue. And, and you know, my focus is going to be on talking about a lot of the anti-trans laws that are unfortunately gaining traction in our country. And I think it relates to everything we've been talking about with bans on CRT, uh, teaching Black history in schools and, and book bans, where I would say that the people who traditionally see themselves as the victors or as the majority um, or as the, you know, the the leaders of society realize that, that they're losing their place. And this isn't one way for them to try to, you know, regain their position. And so they're trying to, you know, attack our freedoms from all different angles, you know, even if that means sort of, a, you know, attacking some of their own freedoms as well. So, so just to provide a few stats, I was looking at the ACLU's website and according to that website, about 75 anti-trans laws have been passed into law but 212 have been defeated. So maybe that means that there's some hope and that the scales are tipping in favor of protecting the rights of the trans community. But, you know, just from what I see in following the news, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. It seems like the right and the Republicans and the anti-trans movement is more active in doing more than we are sometimes. And it may just be that they're better at politicizing and um, advertising what they're doing, but you know, there seems to be this wave and, and you know, it seems like we hear a, a lot more about laws attacking the trans community as opposed to laws that are protecting the trans community. Um, so going back to the stats, laws have been passed in about 20 states. So, you know, a lot of the usual suspects, Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, and some other states. According to Human Rights Watch, the most aggressive states have been Florida, North Dakota, Tennessee, and Texas. Uh, one thing I liked about the ACLU's website is that it put the laws into different categories, including healthcare, public accommodation, civil rights, such as employment discrimination, uh, laws, free speech and expression, schools and education, and accurate IDs. And I think those categories are illuminating because they show that that when it comes to protecting the trans community, it's actually a really, really complex problem. I think there's been a lot of focus on laws impacting um, how the trans community is able to receive healthcare, And I think that's a really, really good starting point and probably, you know, where the stakes are the highest. But obviously, there are book ban laws related to this. You know, there are... Um, you know, laws affecting 
the education systems in the country going to, you know, what Michael was talking about as well. So, so it's actually like a, a really, really intricate and complex web of laws that we have to fight here. And we have to fight them in, in different ways. And, um, you know, I think that, that anti-trans laws are really, really becoming front and center, not just because of the movement of the last couple of years related to George Floyd, um, with protecting, um, uh, you know, color members of color uh, in the trans community. Um, I think that definitely shed a lot of light on what's going on. But uh, I was reading a recent issue of New York Magazine, and they featured uh, one legislator's battle in Nebraska to fight an anti-trans law. So I think that sort of shows that you know there's a, there's a big light shining on this, and this is time to really really take action. And Jessica, I saw that you wanted to jump in. Yeah, I, you know, I love that you said that it's such a complex issue because people think it's just about very specific, like you can't be trans or you can't have these rights, but you're right. If when you parse it out, it has to do with due process, which is the the idea that I took on about substantive due process and reproductive rights and how, you know, those marry together so closely because you can't take just won't away. It's about privacy. And so when you're thinking about, you know, First Amendment rights as free speech, you can't say gay. When you were talking about whether you can get contraception, whether you can go get affirmative, you know, gender affirming uh, types of hormone therapies and things like that, that's all parsed out under very different rules and laws and legislation. And so by dismantling each of those tiny little pieces, you're creating a wave of, of difficulty and like a thicket to try to wander through to get, you know, the therapies and the help that you need. And truly, when we're talking about healthcare, which is the number one thing that is, you know, hurting these people, it's because they're making it difficult for them to go in any avenue possible. And I just wanted to add, I think another area besides the legislation that's been very challenging for um, LGBTQ individuals is, you know, there was the shooting in Nashville back in March and uh, the shooter was a transgender uh, person. And, you know, that started, you know, a lot of legislators and people talking about, well, transgender people are dangerous. Look, you know, they're they can't be trusted. They're they're violent. And that's also been a concern of a lot of people throughout the country as well, is that, you know, these people are different. And therefore, because you're different, like many things in this country, when you're different, you're dangerous. And, you know, that I think has been another level of complexity that's been added to an already complex situation, because besides the medical issues, you know, there's the issues of the bathrooms. There's the whole issue of transgender individuals participating in sports. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of that going on. And, and Mike, I know you're an avid sports fan, and I, I think you have some some comments to add about that as well. Yeah, just that issue you mentioned about transgender participation in sports. You know, I've read some great articles about how that issue um, was kind of intentionally chosen uh, as an issue because it is complicated, right? And people feel, you know, you know, if, if you say, you know, if you say to someone, well, transgender people shouldn't have any rights, you know, many people will say, oh, well, I, well, I don't agree with that. But if you say to people, well, you know, it's not really fair for transgender, 
you know, athletes who transition to then compete with women athletes and then say, well, I'm just supporting like women's athletics, right? Um, it's, a, you know, and so it's this very slippery slope kind of issue. And I read an article that really went into like how that was chosen and how that campaign was put together. Um, and it's pretty incredible to talk about. And, and, you know, I think that one of the things that we need to do is be talking about these issues kind of holistically more. And I know, you know, Jessica, like you said, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. it. It ties very closely into, you know, reproductive rights and what happened in the Supreme Court with Roe. And now we're now kind of at the state level with this stuff. But that issue about, you know, transgender participation in sports, you know, when you really look closely at it, right, it's a bunch of people who it's like, oh, now you're supporting women's athletics? Like, you don't, <laughs> you've never talked about this before in like 30 years, you know, and now that's the most important issue. And so it just bears questioning. And, and it is tricky. You know, I have conversations in my own family, um, you know, and I know that some people <laughs> you know, can't even really do that. So I'm glad that I can. Um, and, you know, not everyone comes at all these issues from the same place. Right. And I've had conversations where, you know, talking about pronouns and some people saying, well, why should I do that? And, you know, but, but, but talking about that and talking that through that, talking that through, but also, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about this issue, this trans transgender, um, participation in athletics. And, and, you know, I, I circled back and I, and I shared that article and said like, Hey, you know, even though you may be facially uncomfortable and there's this fairness aspect and it might be complicated, like you should know that this issue is tied into all these other issues. Um, and, and so I think that, that I just wanted to make that point. Yeah. And I think this might be another great segue into Jessica, your topic, which is reproductive rights. So do you want to share some of your thoughts with that? Yeah, I, you know, I was thinking about this a lot and Jonathan and I's topics were just so closely related that it's hard to parse out all the pieces, you know, the an inability to get contraceptive, the inability to get, you know, IVF therapies, which is important for the LGBT community to, to be able to family plan exactly. and, and family planning specifically is, is that idea of being able to love who you want, be who you want, be with who you want and, and attacking that, that under the law is is really disheartening and it really it really is and and I think a lot about how how are we here what what is this about you know we talk about reproductive rights but is it reproductive rights or is it a grander question and and to me it all has to do with Dobbs it all has to do with substantive due process you know I I did a lot of research and there was one court case in 1938 um the Supreme Court indicated in the USB Caroline products that substantive due process would apply to rights enumerated in and derived from the first eight amendments to the Constitution and the rights to participate in the political process, such as the right of voting, association, and free speech. And just so we're clear, all of the rights to privacy, such as abortion, gay rights, contraceptives, fertility treatments, and even interracial marriage were all enacted under this idea of substantive due process, every single one of them. So when we thought when we talk about reproduction, we're actually talking about um, attacks on women, people of color, and LGBTQ yep. communities. That's what it is. That's what these targeted are because these these laws are core basic human rights that are not enumerated specifically in the Constitution. So what they did was they said obviously they didn't mean men. Obviously. We're going to say we're not talking about just men. We need to make sure that women and people of color can vote. We need to make sure that we can get people, all people, under this constitution. How do you do that? 
without proving that everyone is equal and has rights. And so, you know, it's just so frustrating to see we're talking a lot about abortion, but it's not really about that. It's about the ability to participate in society, to have equitable um, control of our own bodies over our own, like, goals and hopes and dreams and all of life has to offer, no matter who you are, who you choose to be. Jonathan, I think you had something you wanted to add. Sure. So so I, I totally agree with you, Jessica. And I think what you just talked about is one of the big common threads among all these topics and uh, um, among, you know, a lot of the, the really, really bad laws that are being passed out there and a lot of the really, really bad court decisions that we're seeing. You know, right now, I'm really, really worried about what the affirmative action decision is going to look like. And, and I think particularly with reproductive rights and um, LGBTQ plus rights, I think you're right that it's really, really about control over our bodies, which is sort of scary because I thought we were way past that, you know, in this day and age in the 21st century, I thought we could do what we wanted with our bodies as long as it didn't impact anybody else. But now, you know, they're, they're telling us whether we can have kids, they're telling us like whether we can change our gender or not, whatever that means, or modify our bodies in whatever way that, that we want. And it's just really, really scary um, that we're, we're facing this right now. Yeah. And there's some talk about not even allowing LGBTQ couples to adopt kids because of their lifestyle. And I mean, it's pretty horrendous because uh, you, there are lots of stories about kids with disabilities, um, problem children um, who have ended up with LGBTQ couples because no one else has adopted them and they've opened their home um, and they've taken them in and done tremendous jobs. So, you know, you know, here are people who are willing to give kids loving, stable, healthy, happy homes. And we're saying, no, 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 you can't adopt children. It's, it's really, you know, it's really sad. I'm so glad that we could have this conversation, which I know is really the beginning. You know, one of the things um, we went into this saying to each other was that we want to move be beyond, you know, talking about the problem to sort of talking about some of the solutions. And, you know, I think we've been able to at least shine a light on, you know, there, there's sort of legal wranglings, there are political wranglings, there's, you know, talking about these issues in our communities um, I think, you know, in the end, we're a podcast, right? We talk and if we're lucky, you listen. Um, so talking about it is kind of what we do. Um, but I think, you know, there's an urgency on, on all these three issues, um, which is why we, we thought it was so important to have this conversation um, and to move beyond the talking. Um, and uh, I'm so grateful on behalf of myself and Lisa uh, that, that Michael and Jonathan and Jessica uh, could spend some time talking about these issues together with us. Um, so that's all the time we have for today, um, but we hope you will join us uh, for next time on the Inclusion Evolution. Thank you for listening to Inclusion Evolution. The views expressed during this podcast are solely those of the hosts and not of their respective law firms. Share your thoughts with us by emailing us at llmuller at casimerjones.com or mkasden at wigan.com.